Uh, as I told you last week, this will be a PG-13 sermon. Uh, if your kids aren't in children's church, you still have time to rethink that, okay? Uh, it happens once in a while because the Bible takes a turn like that once in a while, where the Bible delves into territory uh, that is <laughs> very interesting for our society. Last week, uh, we, we, we set the stage for this series. So many people were out because of the retreat and other things last week. I feel like I need to just slow down a little bit this morning and recap and make sure we're all on the same page as we get started this morning. Let's start here. If you support PETA or the Humane Society, or if you project humanhood on your pets... You'll be completely apoplectic when you read the opening chapters of the book of Leviticus. They are chopping fluffy white lambs into a million pieces. They are ripping the heads off of birds. They are splashing blood all over the place. And if you doubt me, just go to Leviticus and start reading the first five chapters. And you'll see if if it walks on four legs, they're chopping it into pieces, okay? And uh, it's all about sacrifices and offerings and this and that. And you're going to start reading that and you're going to say, that's why I said last week, Leviticus is about where people in their read through the Bible project die in the book of Leviticus right there. Uh, You typically just say, now what in the world am I reading? You, You think when you start reading things like this is why is God's book focusing on things that our contemporary culture finds so abhorrent. It it, it seems like there is such a disconnect between what I'm reading in the Word of God and what our lives look like in this contemporary culture. You begin to have thoughts like, if God wrote the Bible for me, then why does the Bible spend so much time on issues that don't appeal to me? That's a fair question that you need to come to grips with with for instance as we're going to figure out today why does a spiritual book like the bible have a seeming obsession with penis skin and i don't know how else to say it it's obsessed with it circumcision is discussed so constantly in the scripture The scripture you'll be reading along, it'll be talking about something, and out of nowhere, then the Bible starts this constant circular allusion to circumcision. Circumcision occurs 128 times in the Bible, the word. Listen, that's a lot. Let me characterize how much that is. The subject of circumcision occurs in 23 of the 66 books of your Bible. Circumcision is mentioned as often as grace. Circumcision is mentioned as often as mercy. And circumcision is mentioned more often than the word salvation. Now, do you understand why I call it an obsession? What in the world is going on? And if you're a Bible reader, you have to deal with this. And the way most churches deal with it is nobody talks about it. And the way most small groups work is nobody talks about it. So therefore, nobody ever knows why it's in the Bible and why the Bible seems to be obsessed with it. So what's going to happen by the end of this message is you're about to discover why the Bible takes up the topic of circumcision, why it does, and what it actually means. Now, last week we had this introduction that the Bible is literature. And should be read as literature. And you know about literature, it's got a plot, it's got character, it's got an antagonist and a protagonist and tension. And you, that's the way literature works. Uh, and so let me, the fastest way I know to recap and catch everybody up, uh, the Bible Project has a great video on plot structure in the Bible. Let me just show you this four or five minute video and then you can just turn me loose and I'll take off, Okay. Let's catch up on plot structure real quick. How to read different types of literature in the Bible. And we're going to start by talking about biblical narrative. So narratives, in their most basic form, have characters in a setting going through a series of events. 
And how those events are selected and then arranged by an author, that's called the plot. A basic plot line begins with a character in her setting. But then something new or unexpected happens, causing problems that lead up to some ultimate conflict, which is then resolved and the character finds herself changed, living in a new normal. Now in reading narratives, it's important to understand every scene in the context of its larger plot line. You can make the same story have a totally different message if you ignore where it occurs in the plot. This happens all the time when people read the Bible. Really? Yeah, take for example the story about Gideon. There's this well-known scene where Gideon's trying to discern whether God will help him win a battle, and he requests a sign from God. Yeah, Gideon lays a wool fleece on the ground and asks that in the morning the fleece be wet with dew, but the ground totally dry, and God does it. Now if you look at this scene just by itself, what is the conflict? How can Gideon know if he'll succeed? And the resolution? Test God, ask for a sign, and find out. Yeah, and that's how many people actually read this story, and it totally misses the point, because it's ignoring the larger plot line. Really? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning, you'll get the context. The story begins with Gideon and the Israelites living in fear because they're oppressed by an invading people, the Midianites. Got it. Then there's the call to action. God commissions Gideon to defeat the Midianites and save Israel. Yeah, this is shaping up to be a good story. But then Gideon's super hesitant, so he asks God to do this magic trick, a sign, so I can know it's really you talking to me. And God stoops to his level. He gives him a sign by lighting this fire on an altar. So Gideon's already asked for a sign. And that's not all. In the next scene, God tells Gideon to tear down an altar to another god, but Gideon's so afraid, he does it at night. So Gideon's skeptical and also a bit of a coward. Then we come to the moment where Gideon's about to face the Midianites, and he's still uncertain, so he asks for another sign, the fleece. He says, I want to know if you'll save Israel by my hand. And God gives him that sign. And he's still uncertain, so he asks for even one more sign, which is just a variation of the previous sign. Okay, so Gideon's asking for way too many signs. Exactly. In the larger context, it's clear the plot conflict is not how can Gideon discern the mysterious will of God. The real conflict is, when will this guy get his act together and start trusting God? Okay, so then what's the resolution? Well, we have to keep reading. So Gideon gathers this huge army, 30,000 soldiers to fight the Midianites, and God says, no, way too many men. He whittles the army down to 300. Why would he do that? Well, Gideon's been testing God, so now God returns the favor. He tells Gideon to arm these 300 soldiers with trumpets and torches and then surround the Midianites at night and make all this noise in the hills, which sounds ridiculous, but Gideon doesn't. And the noise scares the Midianites into this frenzy. They start destroying each other in the dark while Gideon looks on safely from the hills. So this story isn't offering the reader tips for discerning God's will. No, it's about God's commitment to use weak people with deep flaws to do more than they could have imagined. Okay, so short scenes like Gideon and the Fleece are combined with other scenes making up a larger plot line. And tracing the conflict and resolution through the plot helps you see the message the author's trying to get across. Now, Gideon's story has been set alongside many other stories that are also about these flawed, often questionable leaders called judges. And each of these has its own internal plot line. But then altogether they make up a whole movement of the biblical story, the period of the judges, and that has its own unified plot line. And there are many movements within the story of the Bible. Exactly. And all the smaller stories, hundreds of them, they fit within the context of their own movements. And then these movements together make up the building blocks of the grand plotline of the whole story of the Bible. So no matter where I'm reading in the Bible, I need to pay attention to these different layers of plot so I can read each story in context. Exactly. The Bible is such a sophisticated piece of literature. And so all these smaller plot lines keep overlapping, building up the tension. And when you back up, you can see how they've all been woven together into the unified story that leads to Jesus. That's an awesome video. Uh, and I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't ask Jeremy before. Jeremy, you in the room? Yeah. Where yet? Hi. Oh, hey, there you are. Is that linked in the notes? No. Can you make that available sometime this week? Yeah. I think everybody should watch that a couple of times. Because that's a beautiful description of, of what we're talking about. The Bible's telling a story. 
There's lots of little stories and subplots in it. Uh, but there's one big story, meta-narrative, that the Bible's telling. What is the story of the Bible? What story is the Bible telling? That's really what we're trying to come to grips with in, in our study. What is the story? And what is the structure of the Bible that holds that storyline together? Well, our thesis here is simply this, that God is telling the story of his kingdom, of God's kingdom, God's heaven and earth connected kingdom here on this world, and he's telling the story through a framework of covenants. The structure for telling the story is covenants. The covenants hold the storyline together so that you can step back like that big picture you were seeing, and you can see all the little stories make one big story. For example, we're looking at the book of Genesis last week and this week. We'll finish the book of Genesis. When you look at the book of Genesis, the entire book of Genesis, the narrative is held together with three covenants. Three covenants form the framework that hold the whole book structure together. Genesis 1 through 3 and a half. God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. Chapter 5's transition, genealogy to get you to Noah. Chapter 6 through 9 and a half is Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. The covenants are holding the structure of the story together. If you're wondering why God's talking about Adam and Eve, oh, now why is he talking about Noah? That doesn't make any sense. Sure it does. He just built another room on the house. It's called the covenant with Noah. It's a structure that holds it together. Story's about to twist again. Through chapter 11, transition chapter with a genealogy. And from the end of chapter 11, going into chapter 12, all the way to 50, we're going to be talking about God's covenant with Abraham and his kids, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But it's Abraham's covenant now through the rest of the book from chapter 12 to chapter 50. It's a big chunk of scripture. It's really dealing with one framework structure, God's covenant with Abraham. Now, a covenant. Let's cover that again. What is a covenant? Uh, covenants are not a biblical invention. They're an ancient culture invention, if you would, or they're, they're something that was very understood in the ancient culture. Uh, the most common, the one I, I introduced you to, was the suzerain vassal covenant. Let me put the definition up. A covenant is a diplomatic treaty between a suzerain. Suzerain, if you're not familiar with that word, it just means a really great king like Pharaoh of Egypt, like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, like Xerxes of Persia, like Alexander the Great, like Caesar of Rome. These are kings, big-time kings, who had dozens, hundreds sometimes, of smaller kings, vassal kings, under them. So a covenant is a diplomatic treaty between a great king, suzerain, and vassal king, to reinforce the interests of the suzerain king. So he enters into agreement, and he says, I'm going to let you be the king over this area. Let's use the Middle East, for example. Herod will let you be the king over Israel, but don't you forget that Rome is the king over you. Suzerain, vassal, covenant they entered into. Oaths are made, terms and conditions are set, and backed up with divine sanctions. Now you have to step back as a piece of literature and say who wrote the book of Genesis and why did they write it? Now we already have talked about this. Moses wrote the book of Genesis and really the first five books of your Bible. The question is why did Moses write the book of Genesis? See if I can summarize this really quickly. The Jews had been enslaved for 400 years and the descendants of Abraham did not know who they were. So Moses, as their new liberator, their new leader, new king, if you would, as their new leader, Moses says, wow, I have a people who have no idea what their identity is. And knowing your story is so empowering, I need to tell you your story. You don't, you've lost your history. You don't know who you are. So Moses undertakes the book of Genesis to instruct God's people on who they are where they came from, and what their purpose is. And Moses, in telling his story, frames it in three covenants, and he frames it with this concept that God began with an idea. God started creation with this 
brilliant, majestic idea that God the Creator came to nothing and began to speak the creation into existence. And God's big idea was that God would make a creation where heaven, God's space, and earth, your space, connected. A place where heaven and earth overlapped. And it would be a temple. It would be a temple where God would meet with man. And in all ancient temples, when you go into the temple, there is an image of the God in the temple. God's temple would be very unique. God's heaven and earth kingdom wouldn't have idols in the temple. Instead, in God's big idea, He said, I'm going to create humanity and they'll be living images of God. The people themselves in the Garden of Eden, the people themselves in the heaven and earth connected kingdom will be angled mirrors reflecting God to a physical creation and reflecting praise and worship back to the great suzerain king. I will make them kings and I will be the suzerain and we will start a covenant relationship with us and humanity. That was a pretty cool idea. God's idea was a creation where human beings, every man and woman, would be a king and a priest. I'm going to be going real slow right here. God's idea from Genesis chapter number 1 was a creation where heaven and earth connect, overlap, where God meets with man continually in fellowship, and where there are living images of God in the creation, and every living image of God, every man and every woman will be a king and a priest. That's a really cool idea. Here's the problem. When God created Adam and Eve as free moral agents, little kings, He gave them the ability to make decisions. That's what a vassal king does. Now the big king is in charge, but the big king says, I'm going to give you authority over your kingdom. The big king's in charge, but he's not in control. He's in charge, but he's not in control of every decision. He lets the little kings make those decisions in their own little realm. And here was the problem. Adam and Eve failed as covenant keepers. And as a result of their rebellion against God, creation was plunged into chaos and discord at every level of creation. I'm talking the weather, the earth's ability to produce crops, the climate, the relationship with animals, how animals interrelate to other animals, how people relate to animals, how people relate to the environment, how the environment relates to people, how people relate to God, how God relates. Everything was plunged into chaos. You'll be reading over there in Genesis, and this guy lived to be a bajillion years old, and this guy lived to be two bajillion years old, and you're just like, what's up with that? Well, you're suffering now the effects. If we can make it to 70 or 80, the Bible says, good job. You say, why? Because... At every level of creation, sin and rebellion have plunged us into chaos with creation and with the Creator. So divine intervention was required. How did God intervene? Well, that's about chapter five and a half or six. God intervened in this way. He said, we'll start over with the second Adam. Now, he wasn't called second Adam. He was called Noah. And God said, we'll see if we can restart this human project with a new start and a new family. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he listened to God. And God said, here's what I want you to do. And I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. And let's see if after the judgment now, after the flood, we can produce a covenant community. You guys know how this story ends, right? After the flood, they failed to produce a covenant community. And eventually, the descendants of Noah, by the time you turn to chapters 10 and 11, the whole society, civilization, is falling apart, plunged yet again into chaos 
and corruption, just like the first family. Violence, rebellion, it's just like the whole thing is darkness and, and despair. That's two failed covenant tries right there. You say, what in the world is God going to do? And if you're asking that question, you're beginning to understand the tension in the story, in the plot line of the Bible. Oh my goodness, the world has freaked out again and destroyed. What is God going to do? That's the tension that's being held in the covenant story. Here's what God's going to do. God pursued his idea despite human failure. Now here's where you really learn to love God. Listen to this. God refuses to give up on his idea. God refuses to give up on the heaven and earth kingdom where heaven touches earth and the people are living images of the holy creator God. After 20 generations of failure, two covenants have broken apart. After 20 generations of failure, God in his long-suffering says, you know what, I'm not done with this human project. I love these people. I love my creation. It was a good creation, and this idea is going to work, and I'm not going to give up on these people. I just need to find somebody who will walk by faith. And so God initiates a third start with humanity with a man named Abraham... Now we're about chapter 12 in the book of Genesis with a man named Abraham and his family and his family is eventually going to be called in a few pages with this title, Israel. The Hebrews, the Jews, all synonyms. The children of Israel, the 12, all synonyms. I just keep rattling them off. All of these things mean a similar thing. They're the children of Abraham. They're going to be called Israel. And God says, I'm not done with this. Let's try a third time now. If I can't get the nations to reform and create a covenant community with me, okay, I won't try to reform the nations. I'll just go see if I can find a man. Is there a man, a woman anywhere who will walk with me in a covenant relationship? Just one, please. And God reaches out to a man who's a Gentile, not a Jew, who lives in Babylon, Iraq area of the Middle East, Chaldean. And God reaches out to Abraham and says, I want to extend a relationship to you. What say you, sir? If you don't think God's all about your free will, what say you? You say no at any point. Many have. What do you say? I'm extending something to you. What do you say? And I want you and your children, I want Israel to display to the rest of the world what a covenant community looks like. My idea is this, it's always been the same, that this nation of God followers will enter into a covenant with me and they will model for the world, angled mirrors, they will model for the world what a relationship with God looks like and what proper interpersonal relationships should be like. Just so you know that's true. When Jesus shows up in the New Testament, do you know what he's teaching them? They say, well, you talk to us about the law. He said, the law can be summarized in this. Love God with all your heart, your mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's always been God's idea. That people would enter into a relationship and he could make a nation, a civilization of people who would get a proper relationship with God and therefore, a proper relationship with each other. Let's read about the Abrahamic covenant. Here we go. Genesis 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Abram, same guy, gets a name change here in a minute. God said to Abram, go from your country, get out of Iraq, your people and your father's houses, to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Sir, you will be a blessing. And by the way, that's my prayer for you. I pray it all the time. That God would bless you, but he would bless you so much that your cup begins to overflow and you would become a blessing to everyone around you. Now, keep reading here. Listen to what he says. I will bless those who bless you. A lot of people don't understand why the New Testament churches in America are so pro-Israel and pro-Jew. Even though the Jews are not believers in Jesus Christ as a whole. And it seems like a real head-scratcher to most of the world. 
Here's why the churches are pro-Israel. Because we've read the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, where God commands, bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Foreshadowing of the Messiah coming. I tell you, whoever the Messiah is already, he's going to be a Jew. Going to be one of Abraham's kids. Is that fair? Somebody's going to bless the whole world through this family. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, his nephew. And Abraham was how old? Now, for you who are older in this congregation, we've got a very young congregation. Most of them see their whole lives ahead of them, and they're making decisions and planning for the future. For those of you who are 65 and 75, I want you to know God's not done with you yet either. The story of you ought to be over here reading the book of Genesis and saying, God, I want to claim a little bit of what you did for this guy. If you can use him to do, turn the world upside down and do new beginnings and new things, God, give me a new ministry in my golden years as well. Abraham will now emerge from this moment, Genesis 12, going all the way to the end of the Bible now. Abraham emerges as one of the main characters. So if you were saying, what's the story of the Bible and who are the main characters? Abraham needs to make your list, okay? He is one of the main characters in the story of the Bible from now all the way. He'll be talked about through the Old Testament. He'll be talked about all through the New Testament. Let's fast forward to chapter 17 where we read about God's covenant with Abraham. They're going to cut a covenant in 15. The details are released in chapter 17. Here we go. Genesis 17, 1. Here's the covenant. When Abraham was 99 years old, do you see some time has passed between these two chapters? We just fast forwarded 25 years, just like that. You say, Pastor, I wish you'd hurry up and get to the end. Well, I'm trying. I'm jumping 25 years at a time here. When Abraham was 99, the Lord appeared to him and the Lord said, I am God the great king. I am God almighty. You understand what's being framed here? I am the great suzerain, the creator of heaven and earth. And if you want to cut a deal with somebody, I'm the guy you want to cut a deal with. How about that? I'm the one who can cut deals. I'm the one who made this earth. I'm the one who made you. I am God Almighty. Abraham, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you. And I will greatly increase your numbers. You're just a man right now with a wife. But I'm going to increase you and you're going to become a people, okay, a nation. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, verse 4, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I just want to pause. It's not here in our graphics. I cut it for sake of time. But if you want to do something fun, go to state.gov website. That's the Department of State for your federal government. Abraham showed up in Washington a couple of weeks ago. I just challenge you. Go check it out. If you don't think this is a big deal, Abraham and his children are still making the news. You'll see the headline on the State Department website. President and First Lady attend the Abraham Accords. And there are the children of Abraham in the White House, sons of Ishmael, sons of Isaac, signing a peace treaty for which Trump was nominated with three Nobel Peace Prizes. It's still making history. I will make a covenant from you because kings will come from you. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. This covenant is predicated on Abraham and his people having only one God, this God, that's making the deal. I'm going to be your God, no other gods. So you won't be shocked next week when I get to Moses and the first commandment rolls off the table and it says, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make into any graven image of anything that flies above in heaven or earth. Or the, you, you won't be shocked then because it's a big deal that the only God we have is God, okay? That's part of the covenant contract, okay? Eight, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. 
foreigner. He doesn't own it. But listen to what God says. You're going to own it. I will give it to you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. This is the deal that's being struck. I'm going to do for you blessing, multiplication, a nation, a land, a people, a country. What does God want in return? What is God asking for in return? Faithfulness, obedience, and I will be your only God. No other gods. Verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for generations to come. Now I hope that's very clear. Now you understand why our thesis is the covenants hold the scripture together. This is what it's all about. Anything that has to do with Israel, Abraham, and his people, which is the entire rest of the Old Testament, now hinges on this moment. Will Abraham strike a deal, put his hand in God's hand and say, let's do it? And they do. Now, covenants are connected to signs. Remember the covenant with Noah that we talked about last week? God said, now, I will never again destroy the earth by water, and here's my covenant sign to you. For those of you here last week, what was the covenant sign? It was a rainbow. God said, whenever I see my bow, I'm going to say, yeah, remember you made a deal, God. You've got to keep it. That's God saying that out loud. Whenever I see it, I will remember. Now, I will refrain from, from, from judging you in that manner. Now, God's chosen a Gentile man named Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Separate from your family. Walk by faith. Live by faith in God. We've got a covenant. It's agreed. But now our covenant needs a sign. What is now the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? So God says to Abraham, we need a sign for our covenant. Covenants have signs, so let's get us a sign. Uh, Abe, how about cutting your flesh as a sign of your devotion to me now? Abraham says, sure, no problem. You know, God, I was thinking. I was thinking about a panther tattoo right here. Like, like Pastor Wilson has. That'd be sharp. I'd look tough. Nations wouldn't jack with me if I had that big old panther tattoo. And God said, yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. But I was thinking about something a little lower. <laughs> well, sure, God, no problem. I've seen some of these sororities and fraternities have brands. How about I brand my calf with a big old cross or something? And everybody will know when they say, oh, dude, what, you got a brand? How cool is that? And I'll be able to tell them about my covenant with you. God said, a little bit higher. I, I, I'm going to ask you to cut yourself in a very personal place. And this cutting has profound implications. Genesis 17, let's keep reading, verse 10. This is my covenant with you. And your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought for money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your homeland or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Got it, Abraham? Now it's very clear what God is asking Abraham to perform as a sign of the covenant. There's no ambiguity, right? Now watch what happens in verse 23. Let's say the first four words together. On that... Stop right there. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Do you see the swiftness of Abraham's obedience? No shock. You know what a modern Christian would say right here? God, God, I need to pray about this for a little bit. I need need to pray. I need to pray. And I need to seek the will of God. No, God's already told you what his will is. Yeah, but I need to pray about that. Well, what are you going to pray? I've already told you what I want you to do. 
Yeah, I just think I need to pray about that. <laughs> Notice there's no shock. There's no repulsion. There's no hesitation. There's no pushback. Uh, uh, well, uh, can we talk? Can we negotiate? Nothing. This is one of the most curious moments in my Bible reading right here. Because now I'm like, wait a second, what's happening? Come on, push back a little bit. I do when God tells me to do something I don't want to do. Come on, push back a little bit and see if God will haggle with you a little bit and come up with something that's a little more pleasant, you know? On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with money, every male in his household, and he circumcised them as God told him. Watch it now. Talk to me a little bit right here. Abraham was... Sound like something any nine, nine-year-old would just, yeah, I've got nothing better to do today. <laughs> this is a good way in golden years to celebrate life. Let's just sharpen us up a nice rock here. Are you kidding me? Abraham's 99 years old when he was circumcised. I don't remember mine. At 99, you're going to remember every moment. Now, you think I'm kidding when I say the Bible talks about this incessantly, and it does. And if we don't understand what it means, you're going to be scratching your head for 66 books of the Bible here, trying to figure out what. I thought the Bible was about heaven or Jesus. Why 128 times am I subjected to this? Verse 25. Abraham, after circumcising himself, he circumcised his son Ishmael, and he was... Be the parent for a minute. God, you're asking me to do this to my son? Okay, you're going to have to explain to your son what's happening. And you better have a very good explanation. Or your son's going to run away when you're not looking. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised that very day. And every male... Now, Abraham's like a... He's a, he's a rich man. There's, we're talking about dozens, if not scores of people. He circumcised every male in his household, include those born or bought with money who were a foreigner. They were circumcised with him. And so I want you to ask yourself for a minute this morning, why was Abraham so willing to go under, uh, undergo circumcision at 99 that he responded with eagerness, with no pushback? Why did Abraham see this as an honor and not a punishment? The big question this morning is simply this. It's not what you think circumcision means. Just dismiss that from your mind because that's irrelevant to the story. The big question we need to be asking right about here in the story is what did Abraham think circumcision meant? Is that fair? What does this main character in the Bible now think God is doing in his life? What does he think is happening right now. Well, let me see if I can set the stage for you. One of the most influential nations of ancient history, predominant through Genesis, Exodus, and the whole story now, is the nation of Egypt, the original superpower, if you will. And Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, etc., Abraham and his descendants have many interactions with the nation of Egypt, and not just on a general level, Abraham knows Pharaoh. Sarah meets Pharaoh. It's a whole side story, subplot. Listen, their children know personally the other Pharaohs that are coming. The, the, the leader of the world superpower of the day has many interactions with Abraham because he's a king. He's, a, he's a, not a superpower king, but he is a, a, a kind of a tribal king. Here's what we know about Egypt. We know that Egyptian circumcision in this time period was an initiation rite for priests. You'll be able to research this later this afternoon if you want to. In the tomb of Akmahan, he's the vizier. He's like the prime minister, the personal advisor to Pharaoh Teddy and the dynasty. 
In the tomb of Akmahan, on the wall, there is a bas-relief with a representation of a circumcision ritual happening in the tomb of the Grand Vizier, the Prime Minister, if you would, of Egypt. And in the bas-relief, they've already translated, you, you look this up this afternoon, they'll tell you the translation of the hieroglyphics. We're sharpening this up nice. We're going to rub it now. You get this blade razor sharp. It won't hurt. I mean, you can tell what they're saying. They've translated it. And these are two men undergoing the ritual of circumcision to be priests or government officials for the nation of Egypt. That photograph, that boss relief is dated 2345 B.C. Here's why you care. Abraham's about 2018. 2000 to 1800 B.C. That is 300 years older than Abraham, which tells you this is the cultural context for what you're reading in the book of Genesis. Set Genesis in this picture, and you'll understand what's transacting between God and Abraham. When these priests went through the the rite of circumcision for their idol God, from the moment of their circumcision, they are... This is an act to consecrate them to the sun god or to the Nile god or to the the, the crop god or to the, the rain god. And when you went through circumcision under the name of your god from the moment after your circumcision, they referred to you as, wait for it, a son of God. Those men who are being circumcised for their Egyptian god whether it's for official service as a king or as a priest, from this moment, people will refer to them as a son of God. Do you understand the context of what's happening now? Circumcision in the ancient world was for kings and priests, not for everybody. It was for kings and priests. You understand why Abraham's not pushing back now? God is saying, Abraham, in your circumcision, you and your descendants are now and forever marked as sons of God, the great king. Everyone will know you're in a covenant with me. You will bear the mark. You and all of your children will be called the sons of God. While only priests were circumcised in Egypt or or princes, Every male, we just read it from Genesis, was to be circumcised in Israel. The implications are crystal clear. Abraham's entire family will constitute a nation of priests and kings. Does this idea sound familiar to anyone? We're right back at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 again, where God has an idea that all would be kings and priests in a heaven and earth kingdom where people would reflect the values of the true God in a covenant relationship. God said, that's why we're not going to get a panther tattoo. And that's why we're not going to get a cross tattoo. And this is why you're going to have a circumcision because it has a deep and profound meaning. It means you're kings. It means you're priests, not an individual. Everybody in this nation I'm building. And Abraham understood that. That was his understanding. He understood God, the great suzerain, was making me a vassal king and entering into a covenant relationship with me. He's going to bless me, prosper me, protect me, care for me, and I'm going to reflect the values of my God to this world. I am a son of God. I have been consecrated through cutting. I am his representative on earth. All I've got to do is believe and obey, and my children will form a new nation That shows the world who God is. A whole nation wholly devoted to God. There is no other nation. There was no other nation. There was no other nation on planet earth. Where every man bore the sign of the son of God. This was always God's idea. I want a people where everybody, men and women are kings and priests unto me. Now, let me see if I can 
fast forward us, jolt us back into reality now. But as we saw with the other covenants, this is now the third. Humanity has a bad track record of keeping the covenants with God. He asks no other gods, please. But we have real trouble with that. And in the case of Hebrews, Abraham's kids, the Jews, Israel. In the case of Israel, listen carefully now. The rest of your Bible understanding hinges on what I'm about to say. In Israel, all the men had the sign. But they did not all have a heart for God. All the people had the sign of the Son of God on their flesh. But not all the people had a heart to follow God. I'm going to take two minutes and prove it to you. Watch what happens in the story. Abraham has sons. He has grandsons. The generations start coming now. Here's the story. I'm going to summarize 38 chapters in about three minutes. Here we go. The great-grandsons of Abraham now want to kill their brother Joseph. But instead of killing him, what they ultimately decide is just to sell him to slave traders. Here comes a caravan of slavers. Let's just sell him. And we'll tell everybody he died. The slave traders take him down to Egypt and sell him to a royal Egyptian household. Kind of a prime minister figure in, in Egypt. And he becomes a slave in that household. Now, back up again. God will not give up on his idea. God said, I will have me a people eventually who will walk after my heart and who will live in faith and obedience and who will reflect God to this world. So what God did is God said, even though you've been mistreated, Joseph, I'm going to bless you in Egypt. And God used Joseph ultimately as an instrument to save Egypt from economic ruin. He was promoted and later the slave boy now becomes the prime minister of Egypt. What a plot turn. Late in the book of Genesis. Joseph now secures a place in Egypt. And I mean a big, like a county of well-watered pasture. The most beautiful pasture in all of Egypt. Joseph secures this land for his family. The very family members that tried to kill him. The very family members that sold him into slavery. He brings them down to the palace and forgives them. And tells them to move into the best pasture land of Egypt where you can live under my protection and in prosperity we can multiply as a nation of people. I'm fast forwarding. Years later Joseph dies. Years later that friendly Pharaoh to Joseph and the Jews, he also dies. The Jews have now multiplied into a multitude of people. Some think there's as many as a million or more Jews by the time Exodus opens and the story of Moses. The Egyptians now are becoming threatened by the Hebrews. Now, here's another curious question for you. Here's a bunch of shepherds and nomads who get moved to Egypt. Just a family, just one man and his family. And their kids and grandkids running everywhere. And they began to be cattlemen and all of this and running the range and building fences and corrals and breeding cattle and a bunch of cowboys. That's what Abraham's kids are, a bunch of cowboys. And they're really thriving down there. Here's my question for you. Why would the superpower of the ancient world be threatened by the children of Abraham? Don't answer out loud. Just think about that for a minute. Why would the superpower of the ancient world, with all their armies and all their chariots and all their spears and all their everything... Why would they be threatened by a little old band of cowboys that stroll into Egypt with their cows and start running the range and, and, and multiplying? That's curious, isn't it? It's like, what, what are you scared of? Well, here's the deal. Because the Hebrews are multiplying and because the Hebrews are being blessed exponentially, wait for it, here it comes, and because... All of the Hebrews have the Egyptian sign of the royal priesthood. 
Because all of those Jews over there in Goshen, all of those cowboys over there, with their boots and their shaps and their six-shooters and their horses, and all of those children of Abraham bear the sign of the sons of God. Here's what the Egyptians think. Those Jews are multiplying faster than we are. They think they're kings and priests. They wear the mark of the sons of God. Can anybody see how this story is going to end? In a few generations, they will enslave us Egyptians. We better enslave them before they enslave us. And that's exactly what happens in the storyline between Genesis and Exodus. When we open the book of Exodus, Pharaoh has commanded now that every Hebrew baby boy, do you know this story? Be thrown into the river Nile and drown. And you're reading the story and said, well, so much for covenant number three, right? That one's in the books now. So much for covenant three. Just like Satan derailed covenant one in the Garden of Eden. Just like Satan derailed covenant two with the corruption after the flood, the Tower of Babel. Just like that, it looks like Satan's won another victory because instead of being kings and priests, the Hebrews are now slaves in Egypt. They don't know who they are. They've lost their identity. They've lost their divine vocation. They're not ruling anything. The the foot of the world is on their neck. They're being told they're trash. They don't know their story. This is the Bible now I'm explaining to you. But here's the good news. God has not given up on humanity. God has not given up on his idea. Let me close with this. God hasn't given up on you. Oh, there's a lot of story left to tell. It's going to take me a few more weeks to tell it to you. But because there's more story to tell, it is my guarantee that what I'm saying to you is true. God is pursuing you. God wants a relationship, a covenant relationship with you. He has a destiny for you. A destiny that you would become a image, a living image of Almighty God. Now the ongoing narrative from here all the way through the Old Testament, the ongoing narrative will be filled with people who have the mark of God. Wait for it. But no heart for God. Do you know what the tragedy of the Old Testament is? I'm summarizing 38 books right now. These next 38 books are about people who have the mark, but they have no heart for God. And that's the tension you're going to feel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But you have the mark of the sons of God. You're in a covenant. You're Abraham's kid. And yes, they're worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and idols and sacrificing their kids to Molech and aborting their children and throwing them in the fire. It's crazy. And you know what? God's just weeping. Because he just wants to be their God and for them to be his covenant people. Let me see if I can land it for us this morning. I'm sure everybody here would agree that you could go to church and you could take communion and you could have all the outward signs of religion and yet really have no heart for God. I'm sure you'd agree it's possible. As a matter of fact, you might even be such a person. At Cornerstone, we're, we're not over the top on religious trappings. That's, it's pretty simple the way we present God and, 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 and discipleship and God's will for your life. We're, we're not over the top with religious trappings. We are, however, very concerned about relationships and very concerned that you have a heart for God. In your own life, maybe you've gone through the motions of religion without really giving your heart to God. That's what true consecration is really about. God wants you to choose to love Him. He's chosen you. He wants you to choose Him. He loves you. wants you to choose to love Him. He would love to enter into a relationship with you. He wants you to choose to enter into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And what God wants from us is he wants you to give yourself everything you are, 
Sounds like a wedding ceremony right here. Everything you are and everything you have, give it all to God. There's probably the majority of us are in a second class here this morning. Maybe there was a time when you did give your heart completely to God. But you know, since that moment and today, life has happened. A lot of life. For most of you here, it's been several decades since you sat around a campfire at a youth camp and consecrated your heart to God. That passion, that burning fire in your soul that you had, and you were just like, I'm going to serve you, God. I love you, God. I want to pursue your will for my life. And, and, and what happened? A lot of life happened between that moment and right now. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying life happened. I get it. So maybe what needs to happen today for we whose hearts have drifted away from God, maybe we just need a fresh consecration. You don't need to panic. Nobody needs to be cut. No animals need to be chopped up. As you're going to see in the coming weeks, this, this tension gets resolved too. I'll show you how in a few weeks. Where you no longer have to get cut to be God's son. And you no longer have to chop something up to be God's son. It's coming in the story. Just wait for it. For this moment this morning, let me just ask you this. Is it time, maybe, that you had a new consecration? You say, I don't understand the word, Pastor. Holy recommitting yourself to God. Consecration. Let me ask you this. What do you have to lose? Let me ask it a different way. What do you have to gain? Everything. Everything. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to pray with you before we sing our closing song this morning. As I told you, I want you to see God as the great suzerain king in your life. And for this prayer right now, I would like you to address God in that way. God, my great king. Because what it does is it puts your heart in the right frame of covenant understanding. And you realize you're a king. He wants you to be a king. He wants you to be a priest. But in that vassal suzerain relationship, he's going to let you make decisions. He's going to let you rule. And he's going to protect you. And he's going to bless you. And he's going to multiply. He's going to care for you. But what he wants in return is your whole heart. Your consecration now this shouldn't be a heavy lift for any of us this morning we're in a room filled with people who love God so deeply I know why don't you say to God this morning God my great king I just want to reconsecrate my heart to you this morning everything I am everything I have I give it all to you I give all of myself to you. give all that I have to you. I am yours. You are mine. And while Christians are pouring out their heart to God this morning, maybe, maybe you've never entered into a relationship with God at all. Maybe this is all new to you. Listen, with a simple prayer of faith this morning, you can reach out to God. He's right here. And all you have to do is make a move towards a relationship and he'll be right there to put his arms around you and receive you into a relationship. Call out to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Tell him that you acknowledge you're a sinner. Tell him, God, my great king, I want to serve you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me in your blood. Cleanse me. Purify me. Make me a son of God this morning. For the first time in my life, I consecrate myself to you and ask you to be my Savior. He'll save you. Save you this morning, I promise you. If you need someone to pray with you, just standing right in the back of this room, there are a few workers. At any point between now and the time you go home, you just slip back there and say, would you pray with me? And they'll know how to help you.
God, this morning, hundreds of Christians are re-consecrating their hearts to you. Lord, all that we are and all that we have, we give to you. God, we know you've held nothing back from us. If you would give us your only begotten son, you would withhold nothing. How beautiful you've treated us. God, this morning, renew and refresh our relationship with you that we walk out of here in such close fellowship with a lightness of being and a joy in our hearts to have you as our God. God, transform us through the word. Transform us through discipleship. Transform us, Holy Spirit, through your inner working that we might reflect the values of God to this world this week. Lord, we have a scared nation and a scared world and they need to see a calm and confident Christian this week. Lord, let us be that person that can help them. Father, bless your people and help us understand the narrative of Scripture and the covenants as you presented them to us. Bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's